0: We read Romans 10. We take up this chapter in connection with the gathering of the church as taught by Lord's Day 21. We read the chapter and we hear the inspired infallible word of our God. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. And in thy heart, that is the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I said, we reference this passage in connection with Lord's Day 21. In the back of our Psalters on page 12, we have question and answer 54. What believest thou concerning the holy Catholic Church of Christ, that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself, by his Spirit and Word? Out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Last week we looked at the election of the church. We noted the wonder by which God determines the nature and the number of His church. We saw the practical comfort and the encouragement with regard to that truth the church is one the church is a catholic church the church is comprised of families and we say with confidence that we are and forever shall remain a living member of christ's church god has chosen his church out of all the nations tribes and tongues and he brings them together into a church and now we face that question how does god gather those elect, how does he bring them to repentance? And how does God bring them into the beauty and the wonder of his church? We must insist on the basis of scripture that never has there been a time when there was no church on earth. God has preserved to himself a witness from the very beginning of time and will continue to do so till Christ comes back again. As that church is gathered in time, the number increases. So that constantly, that church is increasing in number as God is bringing his elect into an understanding and knowledge of their salvation. That church exists for a time on earth and then she's translated into the wonder and the beauty and the joy of everlasting life in heaven. We can distinguish that church on earth is often identified as the militant church. The church that finds herself in the midst of sorrows, in the midst of struggles, victorious, but militant, doing battle against sin and the devil. The church that's in heaven is the church victorious. She has conquered through the wonder of the cross, and she now enjoys the blessedness and the beauty of life everlasting with God. And then there's that church that must yet be born and gathered, the church latent. Now, we emphasize, and the scripture does, that it's not man, but it's the Son of God who's credited with this gathering of the church. And that's humbling. And we just look at our own lives. How is it that we came to be members of Christ's church? We can't take any credit. We look back and we see the marvelous wonder of God's work. How God was at work already in my parents, in my grandparents, How God preserved the truth in generations. How God plucked individuals out of darkness and brought us into the wonder and the joy of that everlasting life. We stand in awe. This is God's work. It's the work of the Son of God as He gathers His church by His Word and by His Spirit. And we account for the wonder of that as we look at our own lives. God is to be praised and magnified for His work. Jesus, as a shepherd, the good shepherd, is gathering his flock in order to bring every last one of them, that none be lost, into the fullness of the joy that awaits. And we know, no man can come except the Father draw him. John 6, verse 44. So that what God began with regard to his eternal decree of election, in time now, he's realizing, with a view to bringing that full body of the elect into the bliss and the glory of everlasting life in glory. We look at that, the gathering of the church, and we notice, first of all, the fact of it, secondly, the means, and finally, the fruit. From the beginning to the end of the world, gathers. God is busy in this work. It's a work of gathering His elect, whom He has before chosen and ordained, out of the whole human race and out of every nation. So that in every generation, the church as the body of Christ has been gathered. Elect have been born and brought to conversion and salvation. The body of Christ is being gathered. Again, this is a marvelous wonder. And we look at our own lives and we see how great this work of God is. That Jehovah God chose me and then in time brought me into a family And brought me into a circumstance, in a situation where I was given to know the wonder of his love. And given to know the marvelous character and nature of that salvation. The body of Christ will be perfected. It will be completed in God's time. When the fullness of Israel, the fullness of the Gentiles, will all be brought into the fold of their one shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, this gathering in every generation and out of every nation is the great wonder of God through history. We look back and we see marvelous wonders that God has performed. And we think of creation. As children, we understand creation and we stand in awe of it, that God just spoke and everything came to pass. And we realize this wonder, God of creating all things, is beyond our power, it's beyond our comprehension, God is calling things that were not as though they were. And no less is the wonder of the gathering of His church. God calls and builds His church out of material that's wholly unfit. They are those who are sinners, who have given themselves over to destruction. The whole human race guilty, worthy of God's "...eternal damnation, lying under the wrath of God, polluted, corrupt, and yet Jehovah God, taking hold of these and bringing them to know the wonder and the joy of life that's in Him, gathering out of the filth and corruption of the human race a people who is the object of His love and His favor, whom He has consecrated, set apart for Himself, and in whom He works to show forth His praise and His glory... And he fills them with every spiritual blessing. This is a wonder of God's grace as he builds his church out of death. Taking those who are given over to death and now working life within them. A life that's not just earthly but spiritual and heavenly. So that they will live forever. Now we understand that it's impossible for man to have a place of cooperation with God in this work. Just as creation had nothing to do with man... So this wonderful work of the salvation and gathering of Christ's church has nothing to do with man. This is God's marvelous work. As he raises out of a dead body a church that has life, chosen unto life everlasting. A church that's not the fruit or work of preachers or parents. God builds his church. It's not the result of combined efforts between God and man. Some would say, well, look, ministers have to preach and ministers have to teach and parents train their children. We confess, beloved, this is a wonder of grace that is God's work, accomplished by God's word and by the power of his spirit. We find that emphasized throughout the the scriptures and throughout the confessions. The Greek word is ecclesia, gathered out of called out. So it's a gathering of those who are called out, called out of darkness, out of death, into now the marvelous life and light of God. The confessions emphasize the wonder of this work, and especially the second head of doctrine of the Canons, Article 9. This purpose, proceeding from everlasting love toward the elect, has from the beginning of the world to this day been powerfully accomplished. "...and will henceforth still continue to be accomplished, notwithstanding all the ineffectual opposition of the gates of hell, so that the elect in due time may be gathered together into one, and that there never may be wanting a church composed of believers, the foundation of which is laid in the blood of Christ, which may steadfastly love and faithfully serve him as their Savior, who as a bridegroom for his bride, lay down his life for them upon the cross." and which may celebrate his praises here and through all eternity. This is God's work by which he is preserving to himself a church. And notwithstanding the attempts of the devil to disrupt the work, it will be accomplished. Christ will gather every last one of his own. We find reference in the Old Testament repeatedly to this gathering. Isaiah 43 But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. And then later on in verses 5 and following, fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Every one that is called by my name. What a glorious work. Jehovah God, having created, having redeemed, and now bringing every last one of his created, redeemed children into the wonder and joy of their possession of the church. And the fact that the church is their confession by faith. I am a living member of Christ's church. This divine calling and this divine work is God's not only from the Jews but from the Gentiles that every last one of His sheep might be gathered. In John ten sixteen, they shall hear His voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. God bringing from this diverse background of Jews, Gentiles, out of all nations, men speaking all different tongues, one glorious fold that will give Him all glory and all praise. And this divine calling. By which the church is gathered takes place by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as the Lord and King of His church. He speaks and the power of His speech is such that He calls His own to Himself. Now we talk about the fact that God regenerates. That is, He gives new life and then He calls His church, His people. God sounds forth his word, and the power of that word is such that it works in the hearts of God's elect to know that new life and to respond to that call. Now the Bible talks about the fact many are called, but few are chosen. There's an external and an internal aspect to that call. Externally, the call goes forth indiscriminately to all whom God in his good pleasure directs it. But not all respond. Not all are saved, because not all are God's elect. But in the hearts of God's own, He works powerfully within their heart that understanding. This call is for me. I hear my Lord calling me. I love my Lord and I desire to follow Him. And He works in us then the delight and the joy of that salvation. The first 4,000 years of the church being gathered can be divided into two sections. The first 2,600 years and then the final 1,400 years. The first 2,600 years, we would identify as the patriarchal period. Patriarchal referring to fathers. The idea that the church was primarily comprised of fathers and their homes and their families. And that history is recorded in the book of Genesis. God gathered his church in homes where fathers served as the head of the home as well as the head of the church. It was the fathers that offered the sacrifices, performed the work, so to speak, of the ministry and conducted the work that was necessary then in bringing their children to understand and to see the wonders of God's goodness and God's grace. Job is an example of this as he lived during this time period, but especially it's through Abraham or Abram and his seed that this work is demonstrated for the first 2,600 years of the church. During the time of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then out of Seth came Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God established his covenant with Abraham and with his seed in their generations. Genesis 15, 16, and 17 elaborate on this work of God. God knew Abraham. And what did he know about Abraham? That he would teach his household. Genesis 18, verse 19. That's striking. God had chosen to himself Abraham. And ordained that Abraham now would be the one teaching not only those who were born in his household, but also all those that were brought as servants and others. And he would teach them to do justice and righteousness. He would teach them the way of the Lord. And God would use that instruction of Abraham in his house as a means to gather his church. Just as ministers teach, ministers preach, God used fathers in the homes to teach And that instruction was passed on from generation to generation. For the final 1,400 years of that 4,000-year period, God gathered his church within the nation of Israel. And God now had established prophets, priests, and kings. Reading the book of Isaiah, one finds repeatedly reference to the idea of my servant. And God now is identifying his church as his servant. And sometimes the reference there is to the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes it's to the elect remnant that was within that nation. Other times it talks about Jesus, who is at the heart of that remnant. The elect. So that we have three circles. We have the nation as the broadest circle. Then we have the remnant, which was those that were God's elect. And then we have Christ at the heart as the one who is central to that elect remnant. God was using his prophets, his priests, and his kings as tools in his hands to minister to the people, to teach them the word of God, and to instruct them. And God speaks to his people as those who are his redeemed. He gives them beautiful promises concerning not only their life on earth, but also the future that awaits them, as God is going to take them into a body, a church, that's far more glorious than anything that's merely earthly. And already during this time, Abraham and others understood the marvelous character of God's work. They understood this wasn't just limited to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel. This was a broader wonder and a broader work. So that Abraham was told that he would be the father of many nations. That through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that the seed of Abraham was Christ. And in Christ, we are all made children of Abraham that comprised the first 4,000 years of the church and then Christ came and since Pentecost the remaining 2,000 plus years take a different form today the church is no longer tied to a nation it's not tied to a specific land the church is now gathered into instituted local congregations And we find that occurring already during the mission journeys and the labors of the apostles. Paul, as he writes to the Colossians and to the Thessalonians, addresses them as the church at Colossa, the church at Thessalonica. Paul identifies the local church with the same word that we would say refers to the whole body of the elect. The whole body of the elect is called the church, but then also The local institutes are given that name. So that we have a right to call Calvary Protestant Reformed Church a church. Even though the whole body of Christ is also called church. Recognizing that we are but one institute of that larger, more broad gathering that is from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The activity of the church is not primarily natural or national or earthly, but it's spiritual and it affects the mind and the will. The church is involved in a work that's not to redeem the world and to transform the world. It's true as Christianity spread through the world, there was a transformation that took place in terms of work ethic and diligence and faithfulness. But the calling of the church is the gathering of that church out of darkness into light and the glory of Christ as he reflects the glory of God. The church is called to preach and to teach, trusting and believing that Jesus Christ is using this preaching and this teaching as his word and as the power by which his spirit is gathering his church. God isn't pleased merely with an outward presence in the church. God wants our hearts standing before him with awe and reverence. And God works so in us that we not only hear the external call, but internally we are convicted. We are brought to our knees. We confess our sin. And we confess that Jehovah God has called me and given me to know my glorious place as a member of his church. How does God do this? God uses means. He speaks and he calls his people to himself. The Bible talks about the fact that Jesus speaks to his sheep in such a way that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Now we can understand how that took place when Jesus was on earth. He talked and people heard him and they followed him. But Jesus isn't with us anymore physically. Already in Paul's time, as Paul wrote to the churches at Ephesus, he wrote to the church in Rome, the church in Thessalonica, Paul wrote to them insisting that they, even though they had never seen Jesus with their physical eyes, they had never heard him with their physical ears, nevertheless, were taught by Jesus. Now how is it that they were taught by Jesus when they never had heard him, they never saw him? It's because the truths that He taught was that which they had learned. The apostles had continued the work that Jesus began. And now He was working in and through them in order to instruct and to teach. So as the apostles went forth and as the apostles taught and as they preached, Christ was the one who was teaching. He was the one that was instructing and He was the one that was leading His body, His church, into a more full understanding of of salvation. Jesus talks that way with regard to Pentecost, that he would pour out his Spirit, and that Spirit would be the power by which his church would be led into the truth and preserved and kept in it. The Apostle writes that way to the church in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. He talks about the seed of Abraham. Who is the seed of Abraham? To whom were the promises given? To Christ. And in Christ now, to all those who are found in him. So Abraham had the reality, even before he had the sign, he had the reality that he would be the father of all those who would believe, even though he had not yet been circumcised. He's not only the father of the circumcision, but also the father of all those that walk in faith. And that's what the apostle here is emphasizing in connection with Abraham and the place that Abraham occupies within the church of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the faith that God worked. And Christ being the end of that law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The manner by which God gathers his church is by his word and by his spirit. But Jesus is the one who's at work. This is the work of the risen and exalted Savior. And this is the running then of the white horse. As the exalted Lord now runs throughout history on that white horse as described in Revelation. Sounding forth his word proclaiming the gospel and gathering his glorious church. He was at work before he had been fully realized in the fullness of time. He was at work in the Old Testament. He's at work after he died and ascended into heaven. And he continues that work now after his pouring out of his spirit. Christ is the one gathering his church as a hen gathers her chicks. That hen loves those chicks. That hen protects them. She sees that they're in danger. And she's active. She's laboring diligently to protect each little one and to gather them under her wings out of harm and danger. This is the work of Christ. And it's the work that Christ is carrying out now, today. He's doing it by His Spirit and by His Word. The Word all by itself would just be a mere lecture, a mere speech. But when the Word comes to the hearts of those have been regenerated, they believe. And now the Spirit works. That conviction in their hearts. I am a child of God. I know the wonder of that salvation. These words and the work of the Spirit is the shepherd convicting and working faith. It's the shepherd calling his own to himself. We can sit here. We can go through the motions, but we realize that's not what worship is. Sometimes we close our eyes, we sleep. That's not what worship is all about. Worship is about thankful praise and adoration to the God of our salvation who has called us out of darkness into light. He causes the words that we sing to rise from hearts that have been filled with thankfulness for what He has done, so that those words that we sing become our words as we pray. He works in us the grace by which we understand and we make application to our own lives and we're convicted and we're comforted and we're strengthened. And he assures us that when we hear the word, that word has meaning and significance. We walk where he walks. We follow him. We desire to go where he goes. Out of thankfulness, we want to know more about his will. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them to follow him. And we now hear that word, and we hear the shepherd, and he calls us to follow him. And with joy and with thankfulness, we follow him, forsaking our own flesh, denying ourselves, taking up our cross in order to follow our Lord, where he would lead us. Now the apostle writes here in Romans 10 about calling on the name of God, and the connection of that calling on God's name and salvation. We addressed this also in Bible study this past week as we noted the preaching and the sermon of the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle Peter in Acts 2. But note here, verse 11 For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's no difference between the Jew and Gentile. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. As the gospel goes forth, the gospel goes to whosoever. God in his good pleasure directs it. God is not limited by nation, by nationality. He's not limited by race or by ethnic. He's not limited in any way by how much someone is worth or how much someone makes. God is the one that sounds forth his word to the ends of the earth. And whosoever calls on him, whosoever believe it. Now we know who that whosoever will be. Who is it that's going to respond? It's those who have been regenerated. It's those in whose hearts God has worked. Because they've been chosen by God from eternity. And now as the word comes, God softens their hearts. And God so works in them the wonder that they hear and they believe. And so the apostle here is setting forth the importance of the preaching As the preaching goes forth, that's not just the word of men. This is the word of the exalted Christ as he now sounds forth the word of the gospel to his church and to his people. Now the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out so that they could bring that good news of salvation. God uses means. But this isn't a joint work between God and man. It's God's work entirely as it's the work of Christ by his word and spirit. The church prayed the same prayer that we pray as we anticipate worship. Lord, send Thy Spirit. We desire that God would cause His Spirit to be present among us and that that Spirit would cause us to hear Christ and to know the joy and wonder of salvation. And that work of the Spirit is such that it opens the closed heart. It softens that which was hard. It exposes sin and works repentance and true sorrow. And the seed of Abraham believed. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And the seed of Abraham are those who are Christ's. They are those who are the elect. They believe in a true faith. And the catechism beautifully sets forth that. A church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. God works faith so that we have regeneration calling faith. And the faith now is such that we agree one with another in terms of the word of God. Faith lays hold on the word of God and lives in the assured confidence of that glorious knowledge. That knowledge of who God is, who Christ is. And what Christ has done for me in the joy of my salvation flowing out of Jesus Christ. Where we walk, how we follow Christ, where He walked and where He goes. And we hear His word and we follow Him. And that's the Apostle's point here, that as the preacher is preaching and as the word goes forth, this is the work of Christ. Christ is the one who's calling. And He's the one Who's sending? The preacher's feet, as recorded here in verse 15, as we noted last week, Sunday morning, symbolizes the coming. We rejoice in the coming of God's servants. We rejoice in the coming of the message that they bring. And that's the reason for our rejoicing. The message is the gospel of peace and good, glad tidings of good things. We hear that God loves us and that He loves us with an everlasting love. And in the context of our sin and our unworthiness and the guilt and shame that rises above us, this is the message that we hear. As the herald sends forth that message, as a herald, it's not his word, he's merely sounding forth the word of another, the word of the king, that word is accompanied by the Spirit. And it pricks us. It's driven into our conscience. It causes us to confess our sin, to repent. We read about God's wonderful promises, about God's wondrous goodness and His mercy, and it's applied to us. And we stand in awe. How can God forgive me? How can the Almighty God forgive me, a sinner? I know my sin. I know the horror of that sin. I know the temptations that confront me every single day. And we stand in awe. But faith works the grace by which I believe it. Even though I can't fathom and I can't understand. I believe that I am forgiven. God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And we struggle to understand that. How can God be with me? How can he always be present with me? Why is it that I'm experiencing these challenges and difficulties? Why does he bring me so low? By faith, I believe. He's with me. He doesn't leave me. He hasn't forsaken me. He's with me. And the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells within us, applying that Word, giving us to know all the blessings of salvation that Jesus earned for us. So that now we live according to that Spirit. We live out of faith and love. We show forgiveness even as we've been forgiven. We know mercy. He's with us. And faith lays hold upon His Word, trusts and believes in it, and worships. Thanks, God praises God for what great things God has done. Not only is God gathering from the east and the west, He's gathering His seed from among our seed. We noted that last week in terms of election. The same is true with regard to then the gathering of the church as He's pleased now to place His elect children among our children and grandchildren. And now then, as that call goes forth, he works fruit in the hearts and lives of our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. As was spoken to Abraham, I will be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee. And that was, was true of Abraham. God works in us as fathers especially to teach our children, to train them up in the way of God's fear. Parents, as they do so, do so in sin and in weakness. I give my child the right to go to hell. I give him a nature that's depraved and sinful. God alone is able to work in his heart that spiritual work of grace. And that's the unending prayer of the parent. Praying for the heart of their child. We desire our children to be healthy, but far more. We pray for the spiritual well-being of those children. We pray for God to be working in their hearts. And God says that Elect parents have no reason to doubt the salvation of their children who die in infancy. That doesn't mean that we stop teaching and preaching. It doesn't mean that we quit showing them the way of Jehovah. It impresses upon us the urgency and the burden of that. God is pleased to work faith in the hearts of our children so that they have hearing ears, so that they will be receptive to that instruction. They're going to receive it. And the church is gathered from among believers And their children. And the church stands in awe of this. Beloved, the fact that we are able to be here this morning is a wonder of God's grace through His Spirit. God guided the churches through an initial letter that was written of intent to establish a daughter congregation here in Hall. In 2007, a church of Jesus Christ was instituted here in Hall, which we call Calvary. And the Holy Spirit has worked obedience in our hearts, drawing us to Himself by His power. Every single day the Holy Spirit is at work within us, drawing us to Himself. But in a special way, on Sunday, that Spirit draws us to worship, calling some from this side of town, some from this town, some from this community, bringing them all together together, in order that we might praise and glorify the God of our salvation who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we're drawn with that desire. He works in us that passion, that love for Him, that awe for Him, and that adoration. It's our duty to heed the call of the Spirit, to come together to worship, to encourage one another in the Lord. And the Bible Admonishes us in Hebrews 10 that we not neglect the gathering together of the saints. And so with joy, we gather, confessing, it's nothing of me. It's all God's word by his word and spirit in my life. Now, How do we understand the fact that in connection with that, there's so many different churches. There's so many different denominations. The history of the churches reveals splinter after splinter. Departure from the truth. The history of the church is a constant struggle to maintain the truth over against the lie. And many churches give in to the pressure. Whether that pressure comes from the communities in which they operate. Whether it comes from members who desire something novel, something different. If we reject God's truth, we reject christ and we reject the work of the spirit and god will not bless us then as a church of jesus christ we need to stand faithful to the truth of god's word and the holy spirit leads and guides his church into that truth brings that church to confess to repent to turn away from error, to lay hold upon the word of god and to live according to it and we believe that although our churches are imperfect filled with sin and with sinners, that God has given to us the truth and that God is pleased to preserve that truth in our midst. And where there is reason to doubt or where there is occasion to question the confession of the church, there are proper ways to challenge that confession on the basis of the Bible. If we're convicted that one point of doctrine or a point of walk or conduct is incorrect, then we bring that point with a biblical ground to the consistory the classes, the synod, if necessary. If they refuse to see our point, then we have to weigh carefully. What do I do? Am I convicted that I am correct? Or am I wrong? And if I believe myself to be correct, my conscience then doesn't bind me to any one specific church. I need to find another congregation then that's more faithful to the Word of God. God at work in His church, gathering that church, working that reformation were necessary convicting his saints and giving them that conviction that this is where i belong as a member of christ's church called out of darkness to join that church which is most faithful to his word and christ gathers us together by his spirit so that his name then is exalted and praised we're not just a gathering of people who have something earthly in common we're joined together because God desires that His name be glorified. And God will preserve to Himself a church on earth until Christ returns. And as He glorifies Himself through us, He does it by speaking to us. By speaking His word to us. By strengthening our faith. By drawing us out of societies, communities that don't want to serve God. That don't desire to maintain His will. So that we can be those who live together as saints of God, showing forth His praise. And the Belgian Confession addresses that calling. It addresses the responsibility that is ours. Everyone bound to join himself to the true church, Article 28. Article 29 sets forth the marks of that church. And what is it that identifies that church as faithful? And what is it that identifies the Christians as faithful? God... Gathering us, not just temporarily, God gathering us together now for a time in an earthly church with a view to bringing us eternally into the fullness of the joy of His glorious church. What fruit there is there then, beloved, in this beautiful confession? When God so works in our hearts by His Word and Spirit to give us to know that we have been adopted by Him into His family, We are filled with awe. We are filled with thanksgiving. The fruit is worship. God works in us the grace by which we are able to believe and confess, I am not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he holds us. And he preserves and he keeps us. And he gives us the consciousness that we belong to him. And as our loving father, he will preserve and he will keep us. God wants each one of us young and old, to be able to make this our confession. I am and forever shall remain a living member of Christ's church. I'm a member of Christ's church. I don't deserve to be, but by grace, He's called me and He's given me to know this glorious place. I'm a member. God has gathered me and He's given me to know this joy and this wonder. And all praise is to be directed to Him. And so I worship and I adore Him and I praise Him. And I live in this assurance. Though the devil battles against me and though the devil sows fear in my life, I am and I shall remain a living member of Christ's church. Because my gathering and my election is not according to me. It's Christ's work. And Christ died in my place. And He will preserve and keep me by His grace. Now, beloved, there's always times because of our earthly struggles and because we are sinful that we lose the sense of that favor for a time. The Bible testifies that believers struggle with carnal doubts. We're not always sure about the preservation and the goodness of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, looks upon us. And He's rich. He's rich in His spiritual gifts. And He's not holding them back from his church and from his children. The issue is not that I have to be good enough. The issue is not I need to be miserable enough. It's not that I need to be able to confess my sins well enough. God, who is rich in mercy, works in me the grace by which I know him to be my God. And he preserves and keeps me in the wonder of his grace. He is the one who's chosen me. He's the one who's gathered me out of darkness into life. And as his adopted children, he loves us and he will preserve and keep us to all eternity. Now for a time in the church that's militant but already victorious, anticipating that day when there will be no more sin and we will be in that church that is eternally glorious. First of all, that blessed assurance that I am a living member and I will remain because of the wonder of God's goodness and mercy toward me. But then secondly, the fruit of this is that we see the beauty of Christ's church. And we see in Christ's church something that is marvelous. We stand in awe of it. It's gathered out of every nation. It's a Catholic church. It's one seed, the one seed of Abraham, that is the elect body of Christ chosen to everlasting life. One promise, one election, And what is that promise? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. God made that promise. And what did that mean? After Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, it meant that God now would put love between himself and the woman, between himself and his church. And for God to put enmity then between us and the devil is to put that love in our hearts. The devil hates God. The devil opposes God. But this is God's work. And God will preserve his church. And the devil's opposition is ineffectual. He cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. God will see to it that every last one of his own will be gathered and will be preserved and kept. And what a glorious church, beloved, to be part of. We, again, stand in awe and we worship. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what marvelous wonders thou hast performed in our lives, giving us by nature dead in sin to know life in Jesus Christ, to know the marvelous wonder by which we belong to our living Savior, Jesus Christ, to know that thou art the one who loves us with an everlasting love and will preserve and keep us to all eternity. Cause, Lord, that we might Ever, as living members of thy church give thee all the glory all the praise and we pray preserve and keep us in the truth amen